Hello and welcome to another episode of Bookends, the podcast for writers and book lovers. I'm Philippa Moore, and this episode's guest is American writer Jessica Brockmole, whose debut novel Letters from Sky was released over the summer, and she was recently over in the UK for the Edinburgh Literary Festival. Letters from Sky is a novel told entirely in letters and centres around a woman named Elspeth, who in 1940 is living a fairly quiet life in Edinburgh with her daughter Margaret. Elspeth is fond of saying to her daughter that the first volume of her life is now out of print. But when a bomb hits their Edinburgh street and Margaret finds her mother crouched in the ruins of her bedroom, pulling armfuls of yellowed letters onto her lap, the past that Elspeth has kept so very carefully locked away is now out in the open. The next day, Elspeth disappears. Left alone with the letters, Margaret discovers a mother she never knew existed. It turns out that Elspeth was a poet living on the Isle of Skye in 1912 when she received and answered a fan letter from an impetuous young man, David, in Illinois. And what follows is the entirety of their correspondence, as well as letters in the 1940s, to piece together exactly what happened to Elspeth and David and whether they might ever be able to put the mistakes of the past right. Epistolary novels are not as common as they used to be with our widespread dependence on technology these days, and the intimacy of pen and ink letters are perhaps consigned to the more nostalgic among us. However, when Jessica moved to Edinburgh for two years, letters were how she kept in contact with her loved ones back in America, and so the seeds for her novel were planted, but it was a week's holiday with her young family to the Isle of Skye that really got her started. been uh, living in Edinburgh and right after my son was born my family decided to sort of take a little holiday up on Skye, escape the city and it was just uh, the landscape was I found very inspiring just you know so stark and so different from one end of the aisle to the other. While we were there we we didn't I suppose we didn't do anything big or special we just sort of um, wandered and explored and we uh, you know followed rainbows and we walked along the the beach and we picked up rocks and you know, I had two little kids at the time. And we'd sit in the cottage that we rented and listen to the rain on the roof and all of these little little sensory things, you know, standing on the edges of the cliff and feeling the wind come straight off the ocean. It's these little sensory things that as a writer I just wanted to try to capture. I wanted to try to get them all down on the page. And looking at looking at the maps of Sky, all of the place names and all of the things that were marked there. I mean, just in the very names you could see the history and the legend and the stories captured right there on the map. And I was really struck with, with, with a place that was so contained and yet contained so much. From the United States where everything is sort of spread out and you have little, little bits of history here and there. And I suppose I've always sort of lived in the Midwest, in the middle. So I haven't lived in uh, the places where the, the sort of longest history in the country are, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I can really relate to that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, moving here from Australia, that's such a young country um, compared to here, you know, seeing pubs that were built in the 1400s and things yes. like that. You know, my country wasn't even 
thought of oh, exactly. from, from a white settlement point of view. Oh, exactly. Certainly. And the um, way that history is um, regarded here is so different from what I'm used to in the States. I mean, you're talking about, you were mentioning centuries and, you know, things that well, aren't very old from a British standpoint, you know, in the U.S. would sort of be behind glass. Yeah. And, and here ancient. to, yeah, and here to walk the streets and see things centuries older than the United States and to just be able to walk up and touch them and you know, feel the history in the stones mm. was just amazing and really kind of neat for me as a someone who loves history. Is, is the Isle of Skye quite isolated? It, it definitely was when I set my story. I mean, obviously there's the bridge now, so that helps. But before the bridge, when I was doing my research on the Isle of Skye during the First World War, I was really struck with this sense of isolation. And that's part of the reason I chose that era to write in. Um, I really got a sense, reading these sort of letters and memoirs from the time, that people who lived there felt distant from the First World War. They felt that it didn't really affect them. It wasn't, it wasn't going to touch them. But then, you, you know, at the time, near the beginning of the First World War especially, you'd have whole sort of towns join up together. And uh, there was one battle, which I, which I mention in Letters from Skye, where Elspeth's uh, brother is injured, where so many boys from Skye were lost. And that sort of brought it closer to home, I think. And again, this is just my impressions from reading these letters but that seems to be when the war felt more real to people on Sky. I mean, I have so many questions about these themes of isolation mm-hmm. um, because I don't know... I like the s- slightly... the very subtle, slightly feminist subtext that you've got going mm-hmm. on in Letters of Sky. I don't mm-hmm. know if that was a, a deliberate thing on your part, but um, I think it's one of the occupational hazards of having a literature degree is that you start reading so much sure. in, into books. Sure. So, I mean, what, what you've got in Letters of Sky is it's 1912 and you mm-hmm. have a younger man writing to an older, more accomplished woman. Mm-hmm. Was that usual for the time or was this something you were just enjoying subverting in the book? <laughs> <laughs> I... I don't think it was very usual, <laughs> but I, it was the situation I wanted to set up, and so I had to decide what characteristics did I need to give David and Elspeth to have that situation. You know, what kind of a man would write to a woman in another country, just sort of on a whim, you know, a poetry reading man too. <laughs> and what kind of a woman would respond and would end up revealing so many pieces of herself over the years. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was sort of fun for me to explore in their characters. And and what's so so very interesting is that because of the setting, yes, you do still get this sense of Elspeth being incredibly isolated despite yes. everything that mm-hmm. she's accomplished um, you know physically and emotionally because as you say what would make somebody respond to a letter from a stranger mm-hmm. because obviously she's in a, a marriage where she's not entirely happy yeah and not entirely understood mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people can relate to even now absolutely it takes Elspeth and David a very long time 
mm-hmm. to admit how they're feeling yes. about each other. Was that a deliberate thing yes, as well? it was. Yeah. But they, they definitely did start to realize it before the point at which they admitted it, and I tried to sort of thread little hints throughout, which I hope got across. Yeah, it was, it was really <laughs> well done. Um, I think they had to sort of really be sure that they felt the way that they felt. Yeah, because it would have been such a risk. Absolutely. And indeed it almost was a risk anyway. It was. This, this younger man writing to this older Absolutely. married woman. Absolutely. David is a very interesting character. Yes, he is. Because he, um, in many ways, doesn't want the privileges that he's just sort of got almost mm-hmm. by birthright. Yeah. You know, he doesn't want to be a doctor no. the way his dad wants him to mm-hmm. be. You know, he wants the life that Elspeth has, if anything. Yeah. You know, having this freedom and this, you know, being able to in, in explore her creativity. But overall, I think what came across for me was that he, he just wanted to feel useful and needed. He did. He did. Um, which is why service in, in the war held so much appeal. Mm-hmm. Was it hard for you to put yourself in his shoes? In some respects, yes. He's, he's very different than I am. I'm not a very adventurous person, although I'm not afraid of water. <laughs> I'm a little bit more like Elspeth in some ways, you know, sort of never really venturing far from home, mm. which is why it was a big leap for me to move to Scotland. That was very out of character for me, um, but if, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. Mm. But it's sort of interesting how you described David as longing for the freedom that Elspeth has, because in some respects, I think she longs for the freedom he has. Yes. And they both have constraints and they both have freedoms, which are very different. Hmm. I mean, she, she's sort of bound very physically and she's, she's bound by, I mean, they're, they're both bound by their families in different ways. But yeah, I mean, she, she sort of longs for the freedom that he has and sort of picking up and going where he wants to go and seeing what he wants to see and just reaching beyond that horizon. Mm. You know, whereas you're right, he envies her freedom in, rather than looking beyond, looking within and staying within. And not so much perhaps was expected of her or different expectations. That's right. right. And he feels the weight of the expectations on him, but she Mm -hmm. feels the weight of expectations on her. Her expectations are within the home. His expectations are out there in the world. I really liked all the, the little family dramas that you wove in as well about what happened with her brothers. And mm-hmm. I mean, I won't reveal anything. All right. <laughs> but um, but I, I really liked that. That added a really, really interesting twist. And that actually uh, was a part of the story that really only was added in the very last revision. Really? Yeah. I mean, her, her brother was sort of, he had been injured. That was always a part of the story. But when I needed somebody for Margaret to write to, when I needed somebody to show the other side of what had been happening on Sky, things that Elspeth couldn't or wouldn't reveal, I sort of brought him out more, and he's, he's one of my favorite characters. He was awesome. <laughs> he, he was a bit larger than life. He, he kind of steals every scene. He does, he much. does. Yeah. Which I can't imagine telling it without him now. And, you know, with our widespread dependence on technology, I think there's a lot of nostalgia for letter writing these days. Um, I think, you know, it's a very uh, common thing to refer to letter writing as a lost art. Do you think it is a lost art? I, I think in, in some respects that's true. I had a great conversation the other day with somebody about the question of what we'll leave behind and how 
letters and diaries fill in the, the gaps in the historical record, you know, which tells us what happened and maybe why those happened, those things happened. But the, the letters and the diaries and the, the very personal things tell us what people felt about the things that were happening. And I'm sort of curious to see what, what takes that place in the future. Because uh, I, I do think it is true that people don't write letters as often. I, I, I don't think that, you know, emails are, will be saved the same way. We won't have that, that, tangible, that tangible piece of the way people were feeling at a certain time and what will historians in the future sort of use to fill in those little spaces. But I do think sort of the, you know, the act of writing to people is still preserved and these sort of ways that we can build and hold on to relationships, the things I explored in Letters from Sky, I think that still does exist, even if it is email, even if it's not a pen and paper. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time that I wrote this, I had just moved to Scotland and I was, you know, that's how I communicated with friends and family for the most part. I mean, really didn't call on the telephone very often and I didn't know how to use my webcam at the time. <laughs> no, not at all. So- <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, sort of the book was sort of exploring epistolary relationships. Well, in my life, I was sort of exploring those, trying to stay in touch and depend on words to hold things together. Do you think uh, one day there might be, in, instead of you know the collected letters of Jane Austen, for example, mm-hmm. there might be the collected emails of Jessica Brockmore? I don't know. <laughs> or something along those lines. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's a... It's a good question. I don't know how good people are at saving emails. And, you know, sometimes we have good intentions, but you know, then, then you change servers or, you know, these things seem easier to lose. Although maybe maybe that's incorrect. If you think about a, a letter, a piece of ephemera and how much has survived, how many of those have survived mm. through the years, you know, a piece of paper. That's true. Now, you, you did a lot of research for this novel. Yes. And read a lot of letters yes. from the time. Yes. Now, I understand that a lot of the letters you read, um, because obviously you had to study the language um, Mm -hmm. quite well and and get Mm -hmm. a feel for the sort of things people were saying at the time, it surprised me to learn that you discovered that a lot of the letters you read were actually quite modern sounding and were quite casual and frank, whereas we have this image of people writing at the beginning of last century. It's all very flowery, it's all very overblown. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, it sounded like a lot of those letters possibly could have been written today. Oh, I did feel that way, yeah. And and it was very it was very helpful too. I there there were certainly letters that were sort of flowery and formal and and very sparing in what they talked about. You know, even letters between lovers and spouses. And for the most part these were letters between, you know, soldiers and other people working at the front and the people waiting for them at home. And so yeah, some of the letters were very reserved. They were what you might expect, but yeah, some were, I mean, the words that they use, the slang and the casual sentence structure and the, I mean, just full of jokes and humor and little inside things. They were delightful. They were really fun to read. And I liked that I was able to use that and still remain authentic to the language of the period, at least as far as I could. Yes, because that was something that really surprised me about some mm-hmm. of the letters um, in, in your book, was actually how modern they sounded. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting how you say that, you know, it, it's these private histories. Yeah. Because 
it's, it's all very well for things that we know other people are going to see. Mm-hmm. We, we make it all a little bit more formal, a little bit more polished. That's true. That's true. And, and that could have accounted for some of it. I know, I know that some soldiers, for example, writing to their wives at home, knew that those letters would be read aloud to the wider family. Mm. So, you know, that could have accounted for some of the reserved nature of them. Mm. Was there any letter in, in your research that really sticks out in the memory or that surprised you? Oh, I don't know if I could, <laughs> I don't know if I could quote anything. There, there was, there was one sort of series of letters and I don't remember the particulars, but it was a, a young man writing to his, his very young sister at home. And those letters were a lot of fun to read. And he'd, you know, he'd send her little sketches, you know, some of which were reproduced in what I was reading. Um, yeah, and he'd talk a lot about the, the things that they shared and the, the memories and the, oh, have you, have you eaten this lately? You know, they talked a lot about food in their letters. <laughs> <laughs> a lot about food. And that was interesting, too, to see the kinds of things that they talked about to each other. Mm. And uh, reading some of these letters from people on Sky, I mean, talked about the weather so much they talked <laughs> they talked about the, the the landscape out there and um I, I thought that was very interesting and I liked that I could bring that into my fictional letters because the landscape was the first thing that really struck me so with this particular book when the seed was planted and you started yeah I'm going to tell this story mm-hmm. was telling it through letters a decision you made right at the start or was it something that was eventually revealed in the story just sort of took you along with it it was the only way it could be told (laughs) I had I I really enjoy reading collections of letters and even before I started researching this book I would I would read them Um, and I thought it might be an interesting way to tell a story I just didn't know what story I could tell through letters Mm. so I had that in the back of my head and when I when I got the idea for letters from sky which I actually sort of started on the drive home from (laughs) From Sky, from, from our Sky. holiday. Yeah. Um, I started writing it in the car on a uh, roll of paper towels. Um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Have they survived? No. My, <laughs> my husband didn't realize what I was doing, and he used them to clean up something oh, in the car, no. which, was, which was fine, because they, they were jottings of ideas, and I, they were still so fresh in my head. Um, but yeah, that's the other sort of funny bit to the story, is that he sort of cleaned up something that one of the children had spilled, tossed them, and where did my, where did all my notes go? Yeah. So yeah, so it it started in letters right away. And actually the first few letters in the book were the first that I wrote and those sort of remained pretty much unchanged. How interesting, because it's such an unusual thing these days. I mean, it was quite common couple of hundred years oh, yeah. ago yeah you know one of my favorite books is pride and prejudice yeah and so much of that book is told through letters there are. You, you get mm-hmm. so much important information mm-hmm. across and, and even you know when I was growing up mm-hmm. and I had something like 10 pen pals at one point oh yeah um as as a kid um because I, I loved getting mail oh so did I getting mm-hmm. mail was just awesome but it, it was also a lovely way to to get to know people yeah I agree Um, and it was amazing how much you did open up Mm -hmm. to a complete stranger Mm -hmm. and tell them about your life Mm -hmm. because it was almost like back in those days it was almost like a safety thing you thought well what are the chances I'm ever going to actually meet this person I can probably risk a little bit more absolutely now your background is in linguistics it is 
Um, and you've taught English as a second language mm -hmm. over the years. Is letter writing a good way to learn a language? It is. And I, yeah, when I taught English as a second language for a little while, I, I used that in my classroom. I had them write letters to each other. Uh, I had them write letters, you know, more formal letters. And, you know, not only is it sort of a good skill to have, a lot of them were coming to work in the United States and so needed to learn how to write a business letter. Mm -hmm. But just a great way to practice different, oh, I don't know, different kinds of sentences from the more formal to the more casual. Mm. I want to move on to your writing career and mm -hmm. how that's blossomed over the years. Um, did you always want to be a writer or is this something that's been a happy chain of events? Uh, I always did want to be a writer. I mean, I was... I think like many writers, I was a, just a voracious reader as a child, especially in the summer. I remember the summer when I was allowed to ride my bicycle to our local library the first time all by myself. And I would be up there every day waiting outside for them to unlock the doors. And I would take home a stack of books and bring them back the next day for more. And I, I was seriously worried that the library would run out of books for me to read <laughs> at one point. And so I, I tried to write my own. Uh, to sort of supplement that. And I was uh, really, really enamored with all of the um, Laura Ingalls Wilder books, the you know, Little House on the Prairie and all of, all of that. And so a lot of my books that I would write to myself, of course, illustrated, lots of crayoned pictures in them, you know, would sort of be in that vein. They would be historical fiction, even then, you know, pioneers even then? Wow. and exploration, although I did like time travel stories a lot too. I, I liked to read and write a lot of those when I was young. And then I sort of, I set it aside when I went to study linguistics, and then I taught, and then after my daughter was born, I sort of reapproached it. I was staying at home with her, and I thought, well, I re remember I really liked to do this. Let me try this a little more seriously now. Wow. And so did you take any classes, or did you join a writing group, or did you just start it as a hobby and see what I just, yeah, I started it as a hobby. Well, before we moved to Scotland, I sort of wrote this very long, plotting, plotless novel in which I allowed myself to make all the mistakes I wanted. You know, I read about writing. I sort of felt my way through it. And then when I realized that one wasn't really going anywhere and I'd made all the mistakes that I think I could on it, <laughs> I wanted to put that aside and really try my hand very seriously at something. And that was Letters from Sky. Wow. So there is another one languishing in the drawer somewhere. Oh, it's going to stay in the it's drawer. It's going to stay there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Letters from Sky was the first book that I finished and started querying to agents. And then I wrote other books kind of in that time, and I queried agents with those, and I amassed almost 200 rejection letters before I oh, uh, finally secured my agent. Wow, so you, you really didn't give up. No. I, this I'm, was really something you wanted to do. It was. It was. And I knew that if I stopped sending out letters, you know, I wouldn't get anywhere, and I might not get anywhere anyhow at the time. Yeah, fair. I had no idea where I was going, but there was no reason to stop that I could see. I was still writing, I was still coming out with new things, I was still learning from the other books I had written and had sent out. So every time I got a rejection from an agent, I'd send out three more letters. Every time I got a request for more material, I'd send out three more letters. On Wednesdays, I'd send out three more letters, just wow. because. You're so resilient, Jessica. <laughs> I just, so many people would have just crumbled and just thought, oh, God, no, I can't keep doing this. I'm, I'm really quite amazed at your tenacity. I think writing and querying for more books 
sort of helped me with that. I I felt like I was getting a little closer with each book that I sent out. I'd, I'd get more personal feedback. I'd, I'd feel that I was doing something right. And I, um, it's kind of funny though, I, so I'd sent these letters out over years. And finally one day, I, I just got really down. I got really melancholy. And I was telling my critique partner, you know, I'd, maybe I'll stop. Maybe I'll stop. Have I sent out enough? Maybe when I actually hit 200, that's a time to stop. Because take a break at least. And she said, she said, you know, it's, it's okay. It's okay to feel let down. You've been going all of these years without once, you know, sort of taking a moment for a cry. And then the next day is when I got the email from my agent. Oh my God. Wow. So sometimes I have to remind myself, you know, it's okay to feel let down every now and again. (laughs) Wow. What an inspiring story. So all of these other novels, Mm -hmm. they're just all in the drawer. Some of them I hope to see the light of day someday. Yeah. But that, that, I, I'm still very pleased with them. That's really encouraging yeah. because sometimes I think, because I've had so many ideas for so yeah. many other books. Yeah. But because I've spent like three years writing this book, I mm-hmm. feel like I can't let go of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I really want to write other things yeah. because I feel like thematically I have That's moved fun. on. Absolutely. Um, and want to do something else. So it's really encouraging to mm-hmm. hear that it's not necessarily the first book that you write. Yeah that will be the one that yeah. someone will say yes to. It's funny because Letters from Sky is the one book that I, well, apart from the unfinished one, but it's the one book that I finished that I never really thought stood a chance of being published. And um, my agent took me on for a for a different book and we had tried to sell that. We didn't have any luck and she, um, she said, well, you know, what else do you have? Let me see what else you have and we'll try to send out something else. I said, well, you know, I have this have this book I wrote while I was living in Scotland. It's, you know, it's epistolary. It's, it's different. It's, it's different. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it was the very first book I wrote. I'm, I'm sure I made all kinds of mistakes in it, you know, although I, it has a very strong place in my heart. And she read it and she said, nope, this is it. This is going to be the one that we sell. Oh, wow. It was. So there's a lot to be said for writing from the heart. Then. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the point I've reached in my own book mm-hmm. because it was a, um, I r- originally wrote it in third person, but, okay. it, but it is based on some things that did happen yeah. in my life. Uh, and I thought that by writing it in third person, I'd get some distance from it. Mm-hmm. And that did work. But the feedback I've had from agents is that it's missing okay. an emotional hook. Okay. So I decided, okay, what the hell I am going to write, rewrite chapter one in first person. <laughs> and it just... It was a completely different book. So now I'm rewriting all oh, no. 120,000 oh, words no. into first person. But it's working. But yeah, when you know something it's works, working. it doesn't feel like a, a slog to get through big changes like that. Yeah, because it, it, it almost feels like, well, mm-hmm. I've spent so much time on mm-hmm. this book, I've got to give it mm-hmm. one last stab yeah. at life outside of yeah. my laptop. I mean, in, in earlier drafts of Letters from Sky, Margaret's whole storyline was all narrative. Oh, how and interesting. I had a lot of trouble with her character and her relationship with her mother. It just, it never seemed right. And when my book was taken on, um, my editor said, why don't you try to make the whole thing epistolary? Try to write Margaret's storyline all in letters. And I did, and just like that, it clicked. Her character just came out hmm. through the letters, her relationship with her mother, 
I could feel Elspeth a little better in the 1940s when I was giving her letters to share what was going on. So they, they really, they all needed their own voice. They did, they, they did, and it was yeah. not coming out in narrative for either of them. Mm. It's so interesting. And I, I love the last letter in the book. Yes. It's just beautiful. Letters are where we started, letters are where we ended. Maybe with letters we can start again. And that, that has not changed since the first draft. And I've read this book countless times and I still <laughs> cry at the end of my own book. Well, that says a lot. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Tell us about a, a typical day for you as, as a working writer. Well, I'm still trying to figure out what that is a little bit <laughs> um, since my, my day has changed and the things that I'm doing has changed. When I wrote Letters from Sky, you know, my children were much younger then and they were both at home. And so I did all my writing sort of very late at night after everyone had gone to sleep. It was sort of my quiet time all by myself. You're a night owl too. Yes. Yeah. Although I'm sort of transitioning now. My children are both in school. Uh, so I have you know, all of those hours during the day to sit and write. But then I also have other responsibilities that I'm doing in terms of email and social media and publicity that were never part of my day before. So I'm still sort of trying to sort that out and figure out the best way to schedule my day so that I still have writing time mm. that I did. Do deadlines motivate you or do they They do. You? They motivate me. Do you have like quotas that you set yourself? It depends what stage of the writing process I'm in. I really like to try to get at least a thousand words a day, sometimes more, depending on what part of the, the book I'm in. Mm. If I'm in one of the parts that I know is going faster. You'll run with it? Yeah. 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 Although sometimes I often, I'll usually set myself sort of thematic goals. You know, I'd, I'd like to get through this scene by the end of the day, or I'd like to figure out what happens here by the end of the day. I do that too. Sometimes I draw a map of the plot and mm -hmm. I think, right, I need to get to this square, yes. this arrow yes. by the end of today. So, That's right. Yeah, I do that too. Do you have any other tricks like how you know Hemingway would stop halfway through a sentence and be able to pick it up the next day? Do you do anything like I don't that? Li I, I've tried that. I don't like that. It doesn't, that doesn't work for me. I like to wrap things up so I can sleep soundly. <laughs> <laughs> Because otherwise it'll keep you away. It will. Yeah. It will. And I'll get out of bed and I'll go back to the sentence. Do you keep a pen and paper by your bedside like I do and scribble down things half asleep? I do. Or sometimes I'll type them on my phone and then autocorrect goes at it and I don't know what I was trying to <laughs> say I when I read back in the morning. The bane of my life. I know. Life. <laughs> I know. How do you keep inspired? I think uh, always reading helps. And even when I'm researching, you know, a specific facet of the project I'm working on, I always find other little tidbits and footnotes and characters that I'll want to bring into a book someday. And I, I, I keep these stacks of blank index cards in most of the rooms in my house. And <laughs> so that when I come across one of these little, little footnotes or, you know, read something interesting in the news that I think is something I could bring into a story someday, you know, I'll, I'll just jot them down. I have this drawer full of these these cards. So when I'm sort of stuck or I you know, really need a certain kind of character to bring in to help out with something, you know, I'll sort of get these all out, I'll spread them out, I'll see if anything seems like I could pull it in. 
So you've got a, a constant will or draw of ideas. Yeah, and, and they don't always work. And some of them I just have to save for another story, but hmm. yeah. So no one's allowed to touch those index cards, I take it. That's no, right. You don't use those index cards to exactly. write a message or mop exactly. up something. Exactly, or... no, exactly. <laughs> I don't even tell my husband where they're at. <laughs> what advice would you have to aspiring writers? What's something you, that, that's really helped you on your journey? I think there is so much advice out there for aspiring writers and so much conflicting advice. I think you really just have to, and it doesn't sound helpful, but you just have to sit down and write and you have to find what works for you. I mean, that that first novel that's you know still safely tucked away in a drawer, I was sort of following all of the rules, all of the methods that you, know, you read about in books that they tell you to do. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I mean, it was fine. I could write, but I've, you know, writing letters from Sky was also a discovery. It was self-discovery. It was learning what worked for me which was not thinking too hard about it, just sitting down and doing it and discovering along with the characters and finding where they wanted to take me and where the story wanted to take me. And we went to some pretty neat places together that I wouldn't have expected. So just sit down and to write and to see what makes the words come for you. Do you, do you find criticism helpful at any stage in the process? Or are you one of these writers who doesn't like to listen to their critics too much? I, I do find it helpful. Um, I think you have to find the right critics. Definitely. And, and that, was, that was sort of also a learning process. I had, um, I had some less than helpful feedback when, after I wrote Letters from Sky when I was still sort of finding those readers who I could trust. It can be a long process. It can. I'm still a little private about my writing and that I don't like to share it with too many people or even the ideas before the first draft is written. But I, I've sort of cultivated a small number of readers who I couldn't do without. I trust them to the ends of the earth. They're your champions. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You need to find those you people. Do. Your you do. You do. Yeah. yeah. So how does it feel to know that people all over the world are reading book now? <laughs> it's It's um, wonderfully overwhelming. It's... You know, for a book written so much in secret, to know that there are people from all walks of life and experiences who are connecting with my characters the way that I always had. I, I, I never thought that that would happen, and it's really wonderful. Oh, the other side of the world.